It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. More than three decades after his death, pop artist Andy Warhol is everywhere. In museum exhibitions, Christie's Auction House, new dramatic plays and musicals, upcoming movies, and the Netflix documentary series, The Andy Warhol Diaries. Andy Warhol's greatest work of art is Andy Warhol. Genius. Art, music, film, fashion. broke every rule. He made you look at things in a completely different way, but that's what art is. And now the Supreme Court will decide whether Warhol's series of images of rock icon prints made people look at a photograph of the musician in a completely different way. Were those paintings a transformative work of art, or were they an appropriation of the photograph by Lynn Goldsmith? Joining me is intellectual property litigator Terrence Ross, a partner at Catton Rosenman. Warhol's painting of Prince was done back in 1984. The lawsuit was just brought in 2019. Tell us about the history of this. You know, what happened? June, this all arises out of a a photograph that Lynn Goldsmith took of Prince in 1981 that sort of caught Prince in a very interesting light and received a lot of recognition at the time. A few years later, 1984, Goldsmith's agent licenses that photograph to Vanity Fair, specifically so Vanity Fair can create some secondary artwork for an article they're doing about Prince. They did not disclose that Andy Warhol was the artist they'd hired to do that, but arguably that use was licensed. However, here's what happens. Andy Warhol, then continuing to use the photograph, created 15 other works that were not used in Vanity Fair, apparently were sold. And then he passed away three years later, relatively early in life, in 1987. Lynn Goldsmith contends that the first time she learned of these 15 other works that Andy Warhol had created, admittedly based on a photograph from 1981 that she had taken a print, she says the first time she learned that was 2016. And so she calls up, you know, by this point, Andy Warhol died. So 
his rights are in the Andy Warhol Foundation for the Visual Arts. So she calls up that Warhol Foundation and says, hey, what's going on here? This strikes me as copyright infringement. And the foundation, rather than negotiating, files a lawsuit against her in New York seeking a declaration that Mr. Warhol's use back in 1984 of her photograph was a fair use. And that brings us to where we are today. So is it the concept of fair use that's the key issue here? So the court case was brought in New York, federal court, and the judge who handled that, United States District Court for the Southern District of New York, made a ruling pre-trial that the use Mr. Warhol made of the photograph was protected by the fair use statute, which is Section 107 of the United States Copyright Act. Ms. Goldsmith appealed that finding to the Second Circuit, which handles appeals out of uh, Southern District of New York. And the Second Circuit disagreed with the judgment of the district court and held that it was not a fair use and reversed. The foundation has now gone to the United States Supreme Court, filed what's known as a writ of certiorari, seeking permission to appeal this decision from the Second Circuit. And just within the last week, the United States Supreme Court granted that writ of certiorari and will hear the appeal uh, sometime next fall. Can you simply explain what fair use is? Or is it impossible to simply explain it? Uh, That's true. I'll do my best. Fair use is a statutory defense against copyright infringement. It's actually in the Copyright Act. It provides that a secondary use of a copyright work may be fair if the court considers four factors. They're non-exclusive factors, but they're four factors and makes a judgment that the use is appropriate on the statute. The four factors are the purpose and character of the use, specifically whether it's a commercial use or nonprofit educational use. That's a very important factor. Second factor is the nature of the copyrighted work. This is the copyrighted work a biography of a famous leader. So that's all factual and would get less protection than a wholly fictional work. Uh, the third factor is the amount of substantiality that was used by the second work. So you're using 100% of the work. That's bad for a fair use defense. If you're just taking a small, tiny clip from out of the movie, perhaps. That's the better argument that fair use should apply. And then the fourth factor is the effect of the secondary use upon the potential market or value of the copyrighted work. Those are the four factors. They're not exclusive. Courts often look at other factors. But the purpose here that Congress had in mind and has existed the common law long before the 1976 Copyright Act was enacted, the concept here is that we have to have a safety valve for certain types of uses that society favors, wants to encourage, but might, under an overly strict interpretation of copyright, constitute infringement. And, and so we have the safety valve that allows courts in individual instances to say, no, this is the sort of thing we, we want people to be doing, so we're going to allow it under this fair use doctrine. Because keep in mind, The trade-off that our country gives authors and creators with a copyright is that you get certain limited rights for a limited period of time in order to benefit society as a whole and encourage creation. But unlike a patent, that copyright is not a monopoly. And so that's really what fair use is about. Central question that presented here in this specific case is how many artists fairly use prior works in the creation of new works. And that's where failures come in. 
What does it tell you that the Supreme Court decided to take this case? Well, I, I have to say I'm somewhat surprised that the Supreme Court granted this case. I think commentators generally are a bit surprised. The court has, I think this is fair, for several decades now, declined to take these fair use cases. They did take the Google versus Oracle case, a complicated case for fair use, and that involves computer programming code. And as we saw in that decision last year, Supreme Court essentially punted on the fair use question. And I think they realized after briefing and oral argument, boy, this is really, we don't know what to do. This is really hard. We'll decide this one, but we're not going to set any precedent with respect to fair use generally. And so this sort of surprising that they took this case, we will never know until some justice or law court writes a biography of what went on. But the speculation is that the court looked at the split that is developing between the Second Circuit and the Ninth Circuit on what constitutes fair use, and indeed the split that seems to be occurring within the Second Circuit as to what constitutes fair use. And a split between the Second and the Ninth Circuits on copyright law is very important because that's where the overwhelming majority of copyright cases are brought in. So it's somewhat disconcerting that there's a split. And arguably, a copyright owner could get a different result depending on which one they go to. And so I think that's probably what the thinking was here on accepting this case. We spoke about the Second Circuit's decision, which sided with the photographer, and it said the fair use doctrine requires a fundamentally different and new artistic purpose and character. Is that contrary to generally accepted ideas or definitions of fair use? Did the Second Circuit go further? So it's a very interesting question, June. So the, the Second Circuit, specifically Judge Laval there, who is very influential in copyright law, developed a number of years ago what is known as uh, a transformative use test for fair use. It is a word that's nowhere found in the statute, nowhere found in the legislative history, but it's a very complicated factor to try to understand in many contexts. And so what Judge Laval essentially said in the Second Circuit is adopted is, what are you doing with the secondary use? Are you doing something significantly transformative? And so the classic example of this is parody. If you parody the work, you've transformed it from a serious work into sort of a comic look at that work. Book reviews, movie reviews, any sort of criticism of that sort have always been regarded as a fair use. And so the concept was that in each of those instances, yes, you were using parts or maybe even substantial parts of the original work, but it was being transformed. And Judge Laval said, and we should just say that what we're looking for in these closed cases is some sort of transformative use. Now, that has creeped into the language of fair use cases across the country over time. And the fighting point really has been whether or not an artist's intent or concept in the secondary use, as articulated by that artist, is sufficient in and of itself to be a transformative use. And so the Ninth Circuit said that the meaning of the secondary use, even if there are very few physical changes to it, is sufficient to justify fair use. In the Second Circuit, they have, in a couple cases, like the Carew case, gone that far, but for the most part, they've refused to accept this notion that the artist's intent to give new meaning to a copyrighted work is transformative. And this is a great example of that doctrine in practice. The Second Circuit essentially said to the district court judge, look, you're not an art critic. 
It is not for you to engage in subjective decisions about the meaning of art. The question is, was this sufficiently transformative? And we, and indeed in the opinion, they put the two works side by side and they go through and you know, this really wasn't transformative. Changing a black and white photo to um, a colorized version, bright colors, just doesn't represent enough of a change, even if it conveyed some sort of different meaning, because that's not what the fair use defense is all about. And I always found that decision to be perplexing because Andy Warhol's work is transformative. He transformed Campbell's soup cans into art. Well, I would agree with you. His work, generally speaking, transforms everyday objects. The question was, in this case, was it transformative? And, you know, it's a very challenging call. But this case is a classic example of the fundamental difference between the Second Circuit and the Ninth Circuit's approach to fair use. I think that's got to be what's bugging the Supreme Court and why they wouldn't resolve that. What's at stake here? Could the court's decision have far-reaching implications for creators? Well, there's no doubt that it will have an impact on secondary use of copyrighted works. As a practitioner, my immediate reaction to the question is that, boy, we would love to have some clarity as to fair use because we're called upon day in and day out to advise clients as to, can I do this? Can I do that? If I really want to do this with the copyrighted work, how far do I have to go to make it transformative? Those are very challenging questions for lawyers. We've struggled with that for years. And so as a practitioner, and I think for most copyright owners, they really just want clarity. They want some hard and fast black and white rules as to what is allowed, what's not. And my fear here is that we're not going to get that. The nature of fair use in and of itself is that we can't make it too black and white. We have to have wiggle room for it to function effectively as that safety valve to allow society's desired uses of copyright works to go forward without creating some sort of chilling effect. So we've talked before about the dynamic in copyright cases between the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Justice Stephen Breyer. Both their perspectives will be missing when this case is decided. It is a very interesting question that a lot of people follow copyright law closely follow. Justice Ginsburg and Justice Breyer had fundamentally different views of copyright law. Justice Ginsburg was much more in favor of broad protections for copyright law, and Justice Breyer believed in more limited protections for copyrighted law. So the opposite ends of the polar spectrum, often leading different factions to court. And here's the important point, they're both very knowledgeable about copyright law. Justice Breyer wrote, I believe, his tenure piece at Harvard Law Review when he was still a professor on copyright in computer software programs. That was way back, if I recall correctly, 76. People weren't thinking about what's this issue of copyright in computers. Justice Ginsburg was on the D.C. Circuit as a judge before she was elevated to Supreme Court at the same time that I was clerking for a different judge on the D.C. Circuit. And I remember having conversations with her in the lunchroom in the hallways about copyright law. She had this deep and abiding passion for copyright law. Her daughter grew up to be one of the most prominent copyright professors in the United States at Columbia University Law School. So they both were very knowledgeable, came at it from different points of view, and that knowledge base and those points of view will be missing in this case next fall. And the question is, what does that mean? It sort of wipes the slate clean. The pre-existing dynamic is gone. 
There is no one currently on the court or about to be added to the court who has anywhere near the background or the passion for copyright law that Justice Breyer and Justice Ginsburg brought to the court. And it creates enormous uncertainty as to how this case will come out. And I think that may also tend to lend itself for the court to again punt on this, find some way short of rewriting the fair use law and come up with something less than the sort of clarity that we all are seeking in this field. I learned something new about you, Terry, talking about copyright with a notorious RBG in the lunchroom. Thanks so much, as always. That's Terrence Ross of Catton Rosenman. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do. That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. A pair of cases at the Supreme Court will test the expansion of workplace arbitration after years of courts dealing with this blurry area of law. The cases will have ripple effects on disputes involving Amazon, major gig companies, and the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. And at least nine federal court cases have been paused, waiting for these Supreme Court decisions. The court heard arguments on Wednesday in a case against Viking River Cruises over whether a unique California law that allows employees to bring actions on behalf of the state overrides an arbitration clause signed by the employee. Here's Chief Justice John Roberts and Justice Elena Kagan. What strikes me is one one difference is that this is not her cause of action. This is the state's cause of action. 
that is what the state has decided is necessary to uh, adequately enforce its own labor laws. I mean, the state has made a decision here, and it's we don't have the capacity to do this ourselves. We need private people to do it, and we need private people to do it in this way. My guest is Emery Selaie, a professor at Loyola University, New Orleans College of Law. Explain what California's Private Attorneys General Act, or PAGA, does. And it allows for a special type of group or representative action where one worker can stand up in the name of the state of California and collect penalties for the employer's violations of the state labor code, even if the violations involve other co-workers. And 75% of the penalties go to the state, with 25% going to the workers, like a bounty. And the idea or the theory is that the, the state of California, through their attorney general, they could bring these actions directly, but because of limited resources and because of the size of California's workforce, the state has bestowed this power of enforcement on private workers. So the private workers are enforcing the labor code in the name of the state. Is this law unique to California? Yes, yes it is. However, in the last year or two, about five or six other states, mainly on the East Coast, like Maine, New York, Connecticut, were considering similar PAGA bills. And I think if the workers win here in the Viking River case, I imagine that the PAGA system in California will be mimicked and copied as a blueprint in other states. So other states are actively considering something similar. And so in this case, you have PAGA conflicting with an arbitration clause the employees signed and the Federal Arbitration Act. There are about 60 million workers in America who have signed and are bound by arbitration clauses. I've done my own research and I found that 80% of America's largest companies use arbitration clauses for their workforce. This means you can't go to court. You go to a private proceeding with limited procedural protections, and that's what happened to the worker here. She had signed an arbitration clause when being hired. And there's a federal statute that the Federal Arbitration Act And it's been construed in such a way as to eliminate class or collective action. The idea is if you agree to arbitrate with a company, you can never sue in court. And the Supreme Court has explained that you're agreeing to arbitrate one-on-one, not as part of a class or collective action. And so the Federal Arbitration Act and arbitration in general seems to be clashing with this PAGA action, which is more uh, collective in nature. So tell us about the, the lawsuit in general. Yes, in this case, you have um, an employee suing for a late paycheck. And the PAGA statute allows for this worker to also seek penalties for all other labor code violations. So if there's a failure to provide a meal break, for example, you can seek a penalty for that. And so um, the penalties here can cover a wide variety of labor code violations. Actually, many workers today, there are about 60 million workers in America who have signed and are bound by arbitration clauses. I've done my own research and I found that 80% of America's largest companies use arbitration clauses for their workforce. This means you can't go to court. You go to a private proceeding with limited procedural protections, and that's what happened to the worker here. She had signed an arbitration clause when being hired. And there's a a federal statute, the Federal Arbitration Act, and it's been construed in such a way as to eliminate class or collective actions. The idea is if, if you agree to arbitrate with a company, you can never sue in court. And the Supreme Court has explained that you're agreeing to arbitrate one-on-one, not as part of a class or collective action. And so that the Federal Arbitration Act and arbitration in general seems to be in, in contrast or, or clashing with this PAGA action, which is more uh, collective in nature. So then is the question when the Federal Arbitration Act imposes limits on the states, or is it a different question? Yes, that's part of it. Uh, here, you can view this case as a clash between federal law and state law. And usually, in most cases, 
federal law tends to win. The federal law here interprets arbitration agreements and arbitration proceedings as inherently by their very nature being one-on-one. But the state law is allowing some type of collective or group proceeding. In other words, it's almost like uh, we have a David, one worker. The question is, will we only have one person, one worker proceeding alone, like David versus Goliath? Or can David seek to recover penalties on behalf of all other co-workers who work for that same Goliath employer? State law seems to allow that group action, but federal law seems to require that individual one-on-one action. So what did you hear as the concerns that the justices raised during the oral arguments? The justices yesterday, they struggled with how to view or define or characterize PAGA claims. And so I believe the end result in this case will depend on how the justices conceptualize PAGA. Like if you think of PAGA as an action brought by the state, it's game over. The workers win because the state of California never signed an arbitration agreement. The state's not a party. They're not bound by the workers' arbitration agreement. And I love Star Wars. One of my favorite characters is Boba Fett, the bounty hunter. So if you think of bounty hunters, they work on behalf of somebody else. If you view the workers here as a bounty hunter working for the state, so the state of California is the real party in interest, the workers win. But if you conceptualize a pocket proceeding as just a procedure, a group or collective in nature, as a special joinder rule to vindicate the rights of several people, the court may find that PAGA is incompatible with arbitration, which is supposed to be one-on-one individualized proceedings, and the employer would win there. I think, I think a lot will depend on how the court conceptualizes PAGA. Is it really the state bringing a lawsuit, or are they going to view PAGA as a procedure? Some justices view PAGA as something like a claim for penalties, like a claim for damages. And if you conceptualize PAGA that way, simply a claim for damages, then the workers should win because the Supreme Court has suggested in the past that arbitration can never be used to undermine substantive rights like the claim for damages. So I think the this case will turn on how does the court view PAGA? How will they conceptualize PAGA as an individual substantive right, as a procedural right, or um, is really this a PAGA action, just really the state acting on its own? Is, is the state the real party in interest in PAGA? Would you say that usually at the Supreme Court, arbitration wins out? Yes. That has been the track record for the past 40 or 50 years. However, in 2019, there was one workers' victory in a case called New Prime v. Oliveira, and I never expected to see that coming. And so there's a glimmer of hope for workers here, but the past track record is not really good for workers. And this Viking Rivers case here is just one of several cases this term involving arbitration. There are actually five total arbitration cases being heard, which is unusual. The court has heard like one or two or three a year. And I believe the court has an interest in promoting arbitration. Arbitration is like a safety valve or an overcrowded judicial docket. It's like every case that gets sent to arbitration is one less case the courts have to hear. And I think the justices have an interest in trying to keep arbitration fine-tuned and working well, particularly because in Congress right now, there are larger debates about eliminating or cutting back on the expansive use of pre-dispute arbitration agreements. Just last month, President Biden signed a law banning arbitration for sexual harassment and assault claims. If arbitration is to continue on a larger scale, the court has to clear up any confusion or abuse regarding arbitration law to show that the system is working well. And they've been very pro-business and very supportive of arbitration. But now there's just a larger debate in society. There's more awareness. I think that um, the media is helping just to shine more light on this practice, which often flies beneath the radar. For me, we can have the most wonderful rights in American history. We have some of the strongest rights in, in all of human history protecting uh consumers and workers, but those rights are meaningless if you don't have robust enforcement. 
And arbitration can sometimes undermine robust enforcement. And so I think people in society are becoming more aware of this with more stories. In this case, could you tell which justices were leaning which way? Was it a split of the conservatives and liberals or were they all over the place? You could definitely see a split with Justices Barrett, Kavanaugh and Gorsuch supporting the employers through their questioning and with uh, Justices Sotomayor and Kagan supporting the, uh, the workers and Justice Breyer as well. Justice Thomas is a little bit unusual here. He tends to dissent whenever there's a state case involving the Federal Arbitration Act. And his view is that the Federal Arbitration Act doesn't apply to states. He's a a believer that states have the right to control their own procedures, and arbitration is very procedural law. And so Justice Thomas, um, I think he's going to dissent. And so you potentially have eight other justices would have to take a side. And I still think if you count the votes so far, it looks like uh, the majority would hold for the uh, for the business here. Tell me about the importance of this case together with another case that was heard, testing the expansion of workplace arbitration and the ripple effects of these cases. Of, of course. So there are 60 million arbitration agreements in the workplace, the American workplace today. And this means that you have limited procedural protections if you want to assert any claim involving your employment. And these tend to be confidential proceedings. And so arbitration in the past has been used to cover up a lot of widespread wrongdoing. For example, um, a lot of people think that Me Too, uh, with the Me Too movement, that it it could have come out and happened much earlier if it were not for arbitration clauses. And so um, we have two employment arbitration cases heard this term. And the Supreme Court is uh, defining the contours of when is workplace arbitration appropriate. You can think of arbitration as involving uh, a dispute between two people. But actually, I think it's deeper than that. Uh, When you're looking at arbitration law, you're asking, what role will the government play in our lives in helping out and assisting with dispute resolution? And so um, with these workplace cases, the court is defining what role will the courts continue to play in American society? Will they be open and available to hear the claims of vulnerable workers? Or are they shut off? And will your claims be heard in a private setting? which is really dictated and controlled by the employer. And so an arbitration in one level can involve the two parties in a dispute, but I think at a deeper level, arbitration involves just the relationship between the government and its people. Will the government, through its courts, be available to hear our concerns? And over the last 40 years, our rights to access the courts have been disappearing through arbitration clauses. Arbitration clauses, they appear throughout American society, not just employment cases, but all over consumer contracts. There are several cases that are being held awaiting a decision here? Yes, that's correct. Some lower courts place their uh, decisions on hold so these employment cases can run their course so that Supreme Court can speak as to these issues. So the Federal Arbitration Act exempts transportation workers. They're not covered. They can't be forced to arbitrate under federal law. And so there are a lot of lower court cases that have been put on hold involving arguable transportation workers to see how the Supreme Court rule in these cases, you know, what will be the final say as to the scope of workplace arbitration? And this is a big deal with the gig economy. You can argue that some truck drivers, that some delivery drivers, that they are considered transportation workers, and so they should be exempt from arbitration agreements under the federal law. And so a lot of lower court cases have been placed on hold just to see what will the Supreme Court say about the scope of workplace arbitration. Is the Supreme Court going to have to make some broad statements here about arbitration, or can it handle this in a limited way? I think the court's ruling could be narrow. 
it could it could narrowly address this fact pattern, but lower courts could expand it to other settings. And so I, I think um, either way we cut this, this will have a broad impact on, on workers' rights. I think that just with Viking River, um, if the workers win, I can see mo- more robust enforcement of labor codes across the country because more states are considering something similar to California's PAGA. And so I, I think that also the transportation worker case that was argued also um, recently involving transportation workers, that's, uh, that could impact the gig economy. And so these cases can have a, a far broader scope, a far broader impact than just the, the claimants appearing before the court. Are there very limited ways that workers can get around these arbitration clauses that are, I think are in all worker contracts, aren't they? They're in the majority of worker contracts um, and also consumer contracts. And so it's very, very difficult to get out of an arbitration clause. So uh, in the consumer context, for example, um, there are more than 800 million arbitration agreements in the U.S. But we only have like 330 million people in the total population oh. and 60 million worker, con- uh, worker con- arbitration agreements. So they're very prominent throughout all of American society, and they're very difficult to get out of. You have to show that there's some fraud or there's some uh, misprints in some arbitration clause. In most cases, if there's an arbitration clause, you are completely blocked from going to court with all the broad procedural protections and public proceedings. You're not even reading what all that the fine print is. You just check, I agree, and then you've agreed to an arbitration clause. Yes, in most in most cases, the consent is not really meaningful or actual. Uh, there was a study by the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau in 2015 that found that more than 90% of consumers are simply unaware of an arbitration clause in their contracts. And even if they are aware, they don't know its significance, that it blocks the ability to go to court. And so these little fine print, the fine print really goes um, under the radar. Most people don't realize they have an arbitration clause or its impact. Thanks, Emery. That's Professor Emery Selle of Loyola University, New Orleans College of Law. New York Attorney General Letitia James began an investigation in 2019 to determine if former President Donald Trump's real estate company had been manipulating the value of key assets for tax and insurance purposes. Since then, the company has waged legal battles over compliance with state subpoenas. Joining me is Bloomberg legal reporter Eric Larson, who's been covering the investigation. Donald Trump's real estate company, turned over 900,000 documents to the New York Attorney General, but only 10 belong to Trump? What did the AG's office say about that? That's right. You know, they, they only mentioned this. There was a, a hearing yesterday um, in state court in Manhattan, and they just mentioned that figure just as an aside, kind of as an example of why the, the AG's office is a little skeptical that the Trump organization is going to meet this uh, deadline that has been set for April 15th to complete um, all this type of discovery. So they, they didn't really delve into that too much. Um, Trump organization didn't comment on the, the lawyer's remark, but it did kind of highlight how really Trump, you know, he's long been rumored to not use a, a computer, not send emails that a lot of his uh, directives and things are just verbal. Um, So it makes it, uh, I guess, uh, sort of difficult to get stuff from him in discovery. But in this investigation by the attorney general there, they said that there are over 100 custodians, you know, people involved, the Trump organization whose records were searched for various search terms and things like that. So over 100 people, 900,000 documents, totaling almost 6 million pages of records, and as you said, only 10 came from the custodian, Donald J. Trump himself, the head of the company. So it's kind of interesting there. 
And I'm wondering if they're wondering if documents had been shredded because the National Archives said that Trump frequently ripped up documents that were supposed to be kept as part of the Presidential Records Act. Who knows what they suspect? I'm, I'm not sure. I suppose anything is, is possible, but they certainly aren't alleging that. But uh, I'm sure they are hoping that perhaps a few more are turned over before this discovery process is over. Eric, explain the investigation, where it's going, and why they may need a paper trail to hold Trump personally liable. Well, at, at this point, they haven't accused anyone specifically of anything. You know, the investigation is still ongoing. It's a civil investigation um, that is separate from the criminal criminal case that was brought against the Trump Organization and its former CFO, Alan Weisselberg, that is over a sort of a narrow tax uh, purpose related to perks that executives got. So this is a separate civil investigation. They haven't decided whether or not they'll even file a complaint against Trump Organization or any individuals. They haven't made that decision yet. So right now, they're trying to find out if a fraud did occur, and if so, who was responsible for it? And we know that uh, in the fight that they've had over such things as deposing Trump and his adult children, the Trumps really fought hard against that. And so the, the AG had to push back hard as well. And in doing so, she said that the preliminary findings were that there were plenty of examples of potential misvaluations of assets over a 10-year period that Clearly, the AG believes something was done very wrong, but they just don't know if it amounts to fraud, if it was intentional, uh, and if so, who would be responsible. So that's why they want to get Donald Trump, Donald Trump Jr. and Ivanka Trump to sit for, for questioning about all of these various assets and things that the AG has listed pretty detailed examples of where they think some of these valuations went wrong. Now, a lawyer for the Trump Organization said this isn't a case where they've been delaying, but he said their investigation keeps growing. There are tentacles everywhere. Has the investigation been growing in the two years or so? I would say that it, it probably has, um, only because that's kind of what happens with investigations. They request information, information comes in, and then they look at it and they see that there's other avenues for examination. I mean, of course, all this started when Trump's former longtime lawyer and fixer Michael Cohen testified to Congress saying that there were all kinds of financial shenanigans going on at the Trump organization, this kind of misvaluation of assets for bank and insurance and loan purposes and things like that on more favorable terms than they would have uh, otherwise gotten. So the AG opened the investigation on that basis, and the Trump organization is, is correct. It has turned over hundreds of thousands of documents. So I wouldn't say it's too surprising that, you know, other red flags might be raised as they look at these documents and so they start asking more questions. That's just kind of the nature of these investigations. But, of course, these defense lawyers are trying to uh, make the point that the investigation has to end sometime. And I, I think they actually <laughs> agree that it is coming to an end. So <laughs> it's not uh, too surprising that the lawyers would say that. But it's also not too surprising that the investigation expanded. And what are the AG's concerns about Haystack ID? That is a, it's a third-party organization that was brought into this investigation. The AG had some real concerns about whether or not the Trump organization was making a proper good-faith effort to do all the, the searches that it needed through all of its computers and cell phones and everyone's records to get the information they were looking for. And there had been such, so many examples of this type of problem 
that the AG was able to point to that the company sort of saw that it was, I believe, about to be ordered essentially to hire a third party to do a parallel record search. So it just went ahead and agreed to have this company called Haystack ID come in and do a separate, independent, parallel search for an e-discovery for records. And it's a company that the Trump Organization had worked with before, so it already had a a standing relationship uh, with this company. But the AG's office did sign off on it and agreed to let Haystack do this. But then it became a little annoyed, apparently, that the Haystack status reports about its huge e-search weren't detailed enough and were not giving the AG enough comfort that it was being done properly and totally I guess, independently at the hearing, you know, a representative from Haystack was there and the judge ordered um, both Trump Organization and Haystack to give more frequent status reports to the AG's office as this process winds down and much more detailed reports. So that was what the AG had requested at the hearing and that is what the judge ordered. So we'll see how more detailed these reports become. What about the depositions for Trump and his two eldest children. Didn't the judge rule some time ago that they had to be deposed? That's right. In February, the depositions were ordered. There had been quite a drawn-out fight over that, but the Trumps have appealed, and the judge ruled that uh, they do not need to testify while the appeal process is underway. They had been ordered to be deposed uh, by March 15th, so obviously that has come and gone, but that appeal case is still out there. The parties have briefed, and eventually there will be some oral arguments, I would imagine, fairly soon, and then that the appeals court would issue a ruling. But it wouldn't be surprising if this got appealed again to New York's top court. So not exactly sure when these depositions will happen, but clearly the judges so far have just shot down all of the Trump arguments for why they shouldn't be deposed. One of their arguments was that she's using her civil subpoenas to insist the ongoing criminal investigation by the Manhattan DA. But hasn't that investigation sort of stalled? Well, I don't know. We have only limited insight into what is going on inside the DA's office. There are obviously the two prosecutors who have been sort of leading that effort, both resigned. There's speculation about why they did so. I think it has to do with the difference of opinion with the new DA, Alvin Bragg, about where that criminal investigation should go, perhaps whether or not Trump himself should ever be charged, that sort of thing. But the investigation is still ongoing. We do know that. Even if it is stalled, I think the Trump's argument still stands and that they believe that as long as that criminal investigation is going, that they shouldn't have to be deposed in this related civil investigation. The idea being that they could somehow incriminate themselves by answering questions in a civil probe. But as the AG pointed out, and as the lower court agreed, they don't have to incriminate themselves. They'll be in the deposition with their lawyers, and if there is a question they're asked that they think might implicate them potentially, they don't have to answer. They just plead the Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. And in fact, Eric Trump, Trump's other son, has already been deposed as part of this civil investigation. And the AG made a point of noting in a court document that he pleaded the Fifth hundreds of times. So it's not as if there's any guarantee that the Trumps would even give the AG anything if these depositions happen. I think it's just the principle of the matter. They say that they have every right to request these depositions and the law requires that they do sit down. Trump did agree to be questioned under oath on June 16 in a class action lawsuit. Why did he agree there, if you know? That's right. That's an ongoing civil fraud suit 
um, related to a long-time promotion that Trump and his family and his company did for a multi-level marketing company when he was on his reality TV show and things. So he would have these multi-level marketing company executives on The Celebrity Apprentice, and he would star in their promotional videos and encourage people to sign up to sell this company's products, notably a desktop video phone, which is now completely defunct. But at any rate, the people who did sign up to sell those phones based on Trump's endorsement claim they got ripped off. He denies that, of course. But uh, this case has been dragging on while he was president. He was able to delay it quite a bit. But his motion to dismiss, I should say their motion, his adult children are also defendants, and his company, they, their motion to dismiss was denied. And basically, there are other, some other side matters related to third parties that have been delaying it as well, and those are being wrapped up. So now they really just don't have any choice but to sit for a deposition. The judge ordered them to sit for depositions by June 29th, and now they agreed to Trump is going to be deposed on. June 16th. And Donald Trump and Eric Trump are also going to be deposed in May. And then Ivanka Trump at some other date that hasn't been set yet. So it's happening. I have to ask you about one more deposition, one more Trump deposition, since you follow all these. The E. Jean Carroll defamation lawsuit, has he been ordered to be deposed in that? You know what? Um, He hasn't. That case is still up in the air about what the appeals court will decide. You'll recall that that's the one where the Justice Department under Trump tried to intervene in the case in a way that would get it automatically dismissed by saying that a sitting president can't be sued for defamation for anything related to his job. And they claimed that his remarks about Eugene Carroll were part of his job. So surprisingly, the I suppose the Biden administration also ended up taking the same stance. So there were oral arguments in the Second Circuit, and they have not issued a ruling yet. So if the case does survive uh, and go forward to discovery, they will not be seeking a deposition of Trump. That is something that came out in uh, oral arguments there. You know, E. Jean Carroll's lawyer said that what they really need in discovery is a DNA sample from Trump. And that's really what they're pushing for, because they want to compare it to DNA uh, samples from the dress that she was wearing when she was allegedly raped by Trump over two decades ago in a department store dressing room here in Manhattan. So it's really not about a deposition um, in that case, but other important discovery. I didn't realize that. That is surprising. But I guess they think he'll just get on the stand and deny it. So That's exactly what Carol's lawyer told me. So they're confident that if this goes to trial, the jury will simply believe their side of the story without a deposition, um, that trying to fight over the deposition in this case could end up dragging it out even longer um, and the sort of a cost-benefit analysis there. So I was surprised, too, but they decided then in order to try to move the case along, they just decided to tell the judge they wouldn't seek to depose Trump, period. Well, Eric, thank you for following all these cases. It'll be interesting to see which one moves fastest. That's Bloomberg Legal Reporter Eric Larson. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, 
the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.